0: The key to staying married. So he said, well, two things. He says, love each other and don't get divorced. <laughs> and this interview was by no means by Christian or godly oriented, but the interviewer closes with by saying wise words from a wise man. Isn't that interesting? An unbeliever saying the key to marriage lasting marriages, love each other and don't get divorced. And the interviewer hears this and goes, that seems beautiful. That seems to be something good. That seems to be something wise. To even see it in a world, even of undergenerate hearts, they appreciate even some version of love. Some version of joy. Some version of peace. Even the most impatient people in the world appreciate patience in others even the most out of control people in the world appreciate self control and someone who's harsh and aggressive like to be treated with gentleness even someone who isn't very loving likes to be loved and so there's this acknowledgement that there's something good and beautiful about things like love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control what the world cannot appreciate is that the only road to actually bearing those fruit truly is Jesus Christ? And so there's a whole world of fabrications, a whole world of systems, trying to create what only the Spirit of God in a heart can create, what only the Spirit of God and the hearts of a community of people can create. This is John fifteen sixteen. Listen, this is these are the words of Jesus saying to his disciples, "You did not choose me, but I chose you." And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So Jesus said, You didn't choose me. You didn't understand or know who I was. I chose you. And I chose you with this view of redeeming you, transforming you, that you would go bear fruit. But it wouldn't be a temporary fruit, it wouldn't be a fast fading fruit. This would be a fruit that would remain. It'll abide. It'll stand the test of time. It'll stand the test of circumstances. It'll stand the test of persecution and opposition. It'll even stand the test of death, where you'll come out on the other side still bearing that fruit. So when we stop to consider what everyone in the world seems to be seeking, even expending so many hours, so many resources, On it, pursuing it we find that the whole world is actually trying to get what only a new heart in Christ can get to achieve what only a new heart in Christ can achieve filled with the Holy Spirit and so we all battle real troubles in life and yet what we're going to find as we look at some of these passages is the only way to stand up against those troubles the only way to produce joy and peace in the midst of chaos And persecution is the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in a heart that's been reborn by the grace of God and Christ. And so, what we'll look at is personal spiritual fruit. That'll be the first section. Then, we'll look at corporate spiritual fruit. And then, we'll look at what we'll call just foundational spiritual fruit. Because there'll be passages that specifically name spiritual fruit, but then other passages where it's implied, where it's okay, these are the things that only come about. By the Spirit of God giving someone a new heart, and so we'll just look at those one at a time. Turn if you would to Galatians five, which is where we'll start. Galatians five. I'll read sixteen through twenty-three. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. <coughs> the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do but if you're led by the spirit you're not under law now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity strife jealousies fits of anger rivalries dissensions divisions envy drunkenness orgies all this and things like these in case that wasn't a full enough list (laughs) it says everything like that and I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness goodness, faithfulness, gentleness self-control against such things there is no law. He's going to go on to say those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and are made alive in the spirit. So that increasingly over time, that second list is what will define us. And even a few verses earlier, if you look back in verses 5 and 6, where Paul says, For through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In other words, even all our rigorous law-keeping won't produce love. Even a whole list of religious rules won't produce love. No religion in all the world, no matter how sophisticated or how on point it seems, can produce love. Because what he's saying is that is a fruit of the Spirit. A heart filled with the Holy Spirit, walking by the Holy Spirit, by faith, will produce the fruit of the Spirit. Because God is increasingly conforming us to his image over time. So let's just walk through those one at a time. Just beginning with love which could be actually a word that summarizes the whole list. So Jonathan Edwards actually translated this verse as, but the fruit of the spirit is love, colon, joy, peace, patience, kindness. He actually saw love as the chief fruit, as the fruit that all the other fruits are subsumed under. And one way to think about love is it's joyful self-sacrifice for the true good of others. It's a heart condition, a heart posture, that joyfully gives itself for the true good of others. Which means for the glory of God, for the edification of people. 1 John 4 God is love. Which means the giving of himself for others is his whole orientation of existence. And that's why god exists in father son and holy spirit he is eternally loving because he's triumphant. he's eternally self-giving he's eternally other oriented so here's the father who's going to send the son into the world and the son who's going to lay his life down for the glory of god and the salvation of his people and he's going to die be raised to sin, and send the spirit as a gift to fill people and the fruit of that is going to be love. Why? Well, because we are being united to the triumph of God. And the whole economy of his existence is love. And that's why that fruit is foremost. That's why Jesus says, This is how people will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Because that is the mark, that is the fruit of someone who's being conformed to the image of God. It's not a fleeting emotion, it's not a mere choice of actions, but a whole quality of heart that expresses itself in a million different ways. Millions of self-sacrificing thoughts, millions of emotions and actions. It's not a begrudging laying of self down, but a joyful one. Like if you've ever been served by someone begrudgingly there's a part of you that says no thanks just keep it i'd rather not be in your debt well how much more so god he's not after our begrudging service our begrudging affection but a joyful one a willing one and so love gladly lays down love gladly serves And God is the only source of genuine love. God is love and he's the only source. The moment the fall happened in Genesis 3, no being in all creation was capable of love, the way God loved. Joy, which refers to deep happiness in God and gladness in his gifts. That's why even that slogan, God doesn't want you happy, he wants you holy, I just encourage you to strike that from your mind. (laughs) It's a terrible statement to pit happiness against holiness, or holiness against happiness. I mean, who on earth would think, yeah, God's holy, but he's not happy? Or would we find that if we spent a day with Jesus, he would be the most joyful man we'd ever met, the most happy man we'd ever met? And so it's impossible to separate our joy from our union with christ it's impossible to separate our joy from joyful self-sacrifice from laying down our life for others it's impossible to separate our joy from holiness it's an unshakable kind of delight in the unshakable delights of christ in the presence of God, in the person of God, in the presence of His people. Listen to Ezra six twenty-two, where it says they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. Do we know what that means. It means every day they're eating crackers. They're eating these sheets of wafer material. They're eating, yeah, what what is unleavened bread? For seven days, and they're doing it with joy. Why? Because they understand what it means. I mean, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a little bit, which we will today, you're gonna put something in your mouth that is barely edible. Right? You'll feel it. But what's the point? Is it the edibility of it or is it what it means? Yeah, it's what it pictures. This is the body of Christ broken from. The blood of Christ shed for us. And so we take the Lord's Supper with joy. In the same way, they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So they keep this celebration with joy. Why? Because God had made them joyful. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And so we can't force it, we can't, again, climb our way to it, we can't just use rules to do it. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something we ask Him to bring about and in us. But they kept this feast with joy because the Lord had made them joyful. Their joy is firstly in God, their joy is in His provision of favor with the king of Assyria, and then their joy is in this opportunity to gather and worship. Which is why even as we gather in worship as a congregation today at 1030, like the hope would be, by 1030 we're in there. As the music is playing, we're singing. Because there's meant to be joy in this. Not just joy in hanging out with friends, but joy in being together in the presence of God, giving Him glory. That's meant to motivate us. Come early, stay late. Not because of Baptist rules, but because of God-given joy. And that's one of the tragedies of, yeah, they're there every the time the door is open because they're Baptists. What a terrible statement. No, they're there every time the doors are open because of their God, because of the joy that He's given them in His presence and among His people. That's what we hope we're taking away, or others are taking away. Or peace, which refers to the absence of turmoil and the presence of harmony, and not the absence of turmoil circumstantially, or the presence of harmony circumstantially, but the absence of turmoil in the heart, and the presence of harmony in heart, the removal of conflict, the infusion of genuine rest, a condition of heart, not a condition of circumstance. I think that's one of the things that would have struck us so much in the presence of Jesus is how at peace he was when surrounded by chaos. In the middle of a storm, way is crashing in the boat, and he's sleeping on a cushion. That's the picture of peace. And I wish someone would do that painting. That would be a great painting. That painting of the Sea of Galilee green with all the waves and turmoil in the boat, 12 disciples in a panic, Jesus asleep, and then just the picture, peace. That's God's version of peace. Our version is it's still waters, gentle breeze so we don't have to row, someone with a violin eating grapes, and we go, there. that's peace. And yet in this world, that's just not how God the. It's something of the heart. It's a stillness of heart, a settledness of heart. And as long as we keep trying to make peace here by getting peace out here, it's not going to happen. It's a fruit of the spirit, not a fruit of society, not a fruit of government policy, not a fruit of wartime decisions or peacetime decisions, a fruit of the spirit. John fourteen twenty seven. peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And that's quite a statement when he's about to be crucified. And persecutions are about to stir up. That he would say, I'm going to give you a kind of peace this world doesn't understand. A kind of peace you can't get from this world. A kind of peace that truly makes you not afraid. Why? Well, because the only real, serious, lasting danger is going to be taken care of. You're going to be reconciled to God. You're going to have peace with God. Your sins are going to be forgiven. You're going to now exist forever in the very hands of your Savior. He says that's the reason for peace. Or patience, which refers to the glad endurance of hardship in order to obtain a future reward can also be translated long-suffering, a glad endurance of hardship in order to obtain a future reward. Just think about how much sexual immorality, licentiousness, drug and alcohol abuse, binging on food, self-injury, even suicidal desires, just losing ourselves into video games, television, whatever it might be. I don't mean using things that are fine to use. I mean getting lost in them. And how much of that comes from impatience? And what I mean is the unwillingness to sit still when uncomfortable. The unwillingness to be still when in pain. And to endure it. And so a quickness to medicate, a quickness to numb, a quickness to escapism is often the byproduct of impatience. I don't want to suffer long. I don't want to have to endure under this affliction. And the world is happy to provide you with thousands of options to escape pain, thousands of roads out of difficulty. And yet, what the fruit's trying to bear in us is this patience that is willing to endure. Because there's a future outcome we're waiting for, and it's the resurrection. We're willing to accept this life will be hard. And some moments will be harder than others. And yet this isn't our home. This isn't where we're building our permanent dwelling. Now, What we're hoping for is the resurrection. What we're moving toward is that last day. And so we're willing to long suffer. And that's a, a fruit of the spirit that he's bearing in us. Or kindness. It refers to a heart posture that produces generosity and compassion. A heart posture that produces generosity and compassion. It's a quality of heart that first appreciates the kindness of God, the generosity of God toward us, the compassion of God toward us, which then moves us to express that same kindness toward others, whether that's in words whether that's facial expressions, tone of voice, acts of service, and you can maybe fake it for five minutes, 10 minutes, but you can't fake it for a week, a month, a lifetime. A genuine kind of generosity and compassion toward others that is birthed from a heart that has been that moved by the kindness of God. And what a kind gift is the gift of the spirit who is kind and so he's going to teach us to be kind or goodness which refers to purity righteousness and holiness of character that's what goodness is in exodus thirty-three nineteen? 19 it's one of the things the lord is going to promise to moses moses is going to ask lord show me your glory. And and God is going to answer yes by saying, I will surely cause my goodness to pass before you. Isn't that an interesting statement? Lord, show me your glory. I'll show you my goodness. Because that's God saying, I will show you my glory. I'll show you how good I am. And he passes before Moses, declaring his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And all of that is an expression of the goodness of God. His justice. His righteousness. His steadfast love and mercy. His graciousness is slowness to anger and so for him to share his goodness with us through the indwelling holy spirit is to make us more merciful it's to make us more gracious it's to make us slower to anger it's to make us more forgiving it's to make us more just that's goodness and a fruit of the spirit being goodness or faithfulness refers to keeping your word, no matter what it costs. Swearing to your own hurt and not changing. Psalm 15. That if we vow to follow Jesus, then we follow him no matter what it costs. That even though we stumble, we fall, we wander along the way, but just that convicting, humbling work of the Holy Spirit secures our faithfulness we still cling to him as he clings to us by god's grace we keep our word to our spouses to our friends to our children to our neighbors Here's psalm 15 verse 1. "O lord who shall sojourn in your tent who shall dwell on your holy hill he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue does no evil to his neighbor Take, does not take up a reproach against his friends, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own herd and does not change. That's faithful. That when we make a promise, we keep it. When we choose to follow him, we continue in that. The spirit is doing that in us. The spirit is giving us hearts that are more faithful or gentle, which refers to a disposition of meekness, a disposition of quietness rather than harshness and severity. And so it begins in us with a gentle and quiet spirit. And again, we can't fabricate this. That's the danger, just getting up in the morning, you know what, yesterday was pretty harsh, today I'm going to be gentle. (laughs) It's just not that easy, because this is a condition of heart. This is something that the Spirit is producing in us slowly over time, where we're hopefully becoming increasingly gentle. So the question isn't, are you perfectly gentle today? It's just, are you more gentle today than you were two years ago? are you going to be more gentle in five years than you are today because you're yielding to the work of the spirit in you over time and that's producing what starts with a gentleness and quietness of heart and that's the part that just we so often miss it's not external composure merely it's firstly internal composure and what's amazing is jesus can turn over tables and drive money changers from the temple and be completely meek at the same time. So it doesn't mean there's no emotion. It doesn't mean there are moments of great expression of emotion. But it's still coming from a heart that isn't harsh or severe, but gentle and meek. It's so fascinating that children were much more comfortable approaching Jesus than Pharisees. There's just something about that that should strike us. Little children knew, like little toddlers knew, I can approach this guy. I can climb on him. I can pull his beard. I can drool his face. I can laugh and giggle and pull around with him. And his disciples, of course, were horrified, right? (laughs) Children are climbing on him. They're like, whoa, 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 get away. And what does Jesus say? No, let him come for the kingdom that belongs to such as these. And it's a question I've always had is, how did they know these little kids knew, this God, you can approach. I mean, this is the Son of God in the flesh. This is God Almighty on earth. And little children go, i can climb this well. That's gentleness and meekness and quietness of heart. But then self-control, which refers to restraining fleshly desires while acting upon godly desires is the sinful flesh as we read earlier in Galatians six or five just desires a whole list of things but the spirit is desiring something else in us to speak of Christ to give thanks to Christ to direct our energies toward the kingdom of Christ to give our bodies not as instruments of unrighteousness but instruments of righteousness to restrain those impulses that indulge the flesh while following those impulses that indulge and follow the spirit. Again, that's, you can't just get up every day and go, I'm just going to try harder. I'm just going to white-knuckle it. Now this is a prayer request, Lord, make me self-controlled. Control me by your spirit. Any questions, reflections on that before we keep moving? The corporate spiritual fruit. What's a good way to go about that? Yeah, good question. Ask, Praying, asking God, do you have any father, please help me to follow your spirit today or let the spirit abide in me, abide in me throughout the day? Or? So I think you've identified the biggest way. I mean, the biggest way is prayer. If we really believe this is a fruit of the spirit, then we rise in the morning, abiding in Christ, and say, Lord, help me follow you. Lord, bear these fruit. And this is, I think, what Jesus said. If, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And, and so are we going to rise in the morning, abiding in him, and go, Lord, help me hit the lottery today. I just need a couple million dollars to." so I can serve you of course and that's not mm-hmm. done it, it could be, but, we, but if we wake up right. and pray Lord help me walk in your spirit yeah. help these fruit be formed in my heart and life he goes you got it now we have to get rid of whatever perfectionism we think that means for the day yeah. Yeah. that means that you will produce in me a perfect array of spiritual fruit without any work, effort or time needed when instead of, he's like yes i will help you we're going to take the next 70 years here in all the right circumstances and all the right people and all the right trouble and all the right passages of scripture and all the right hymns and songs and we're going to form your heart in the image of christ and you will bear this fruit increasingly over time that's how he's going to answer that prayer that's how he does answer that prayer because he loves that prayer he loves moses spirit, lord show me your glory and god didn't say but he needs to say finally somebody's asking something i'd love to give is it certainly not is what have been asked to that point so same here when his children wake up in the morning and say lord produce this for your glory for the good of others he's like yes but then corporate spiritual fruit turn to ephesians 5 if you would Ephesians 5, 18 to 21, where he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know, there's, there's only one imperative command in the verse, interestingly, in this passage, and it's be filled with the Spirit. It's actually the only imperative verb. In English, addressing one another, singing and making melody, giving thanks, those all look like verbs. They function like verbs, but they're participles. And what it means is they're participles in the Greek, which means they're all subordinate to be filled. In other words, they're all dependent on being filled with the Spirit. That's what the passage is trying to convey. Don't be drunk with wine, meaning don't be under the control of wine. For that's debauchery. But rather, be under the control of the Spirit of God. Be filled with the Spirit of God. It starts with being filled as a Christian. But then secondly, it starts with, okay, feeding upon the word of God every day, where we're giving the spirit of God that raw material of scripture to deal with. We're asking for his help in prayer. We're surrounding ourselves with other followers of Jesus to help us and encourage us and pray for us. And then what that produces is this corporate fruit of the spirit, beginning with addressing one another, how we speak, how we listen, and that speech is defined by psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. It doesn't we're walking around singing to each other. You could. It means, rather, that our words are shaped and filled by the words of the psalms. By words of praise. By God-centered ideas. By Christ-exalting truths. That those are the words that are shaping how we talk to each other. How we address one another. Galatians 3, or Galatians 5, 13 to 15. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. that's the opposite of what paul's saying in ephesians 5. the biting and devouring don't bite and devour but rather address one another with psalms and spiritual songs secondly singing and making melody which is in many ways a call to raise our voices together in corporate worship and songs so we're going to get to obey that passage even this morning but also not only in the weekly gathering of the church but also in life groups and around tables Just when Christians gather together in fellowship, there's something about singing. You know, our elder meetings every two weeks, we always start it with a hymn. We we sing together. It's one of the most unifying things Christians can ever do, to actually sing the same words to the same rhythm and beat, mostly to the same tune, right? Again, the Spirit has to intercede depends on what section of the main hall you're in. You know, some sections are more in tune than others. But nonetheless, think about, is there anything more unified we do as a church than that? When we're all with one voice, singing together the same words to the same tune, at the same pace, to the same God, through the same Christ, but with the same spirit. Or when we're led in prayer this morning, will be led by Sam Connect and Jacob Killian and others who pray that we will be praying in our minds with them. They pray, but we're praying with them. We're giving thanks always and for everything. I mean, think about that statement. Do you give thanks always for everything? How sobering is that? We can read those kind of statements and say, surely he's kidding. There's no way he means it. But no, that's the kind of corporate spiritual fruit the Spirit of God produces in us, is that we're always giving thanks in everything. It doesn't mean we thank him for every trial, but we thank him in every trial for what he's going to do with every trial. But just that posture of heart that's just always giving thanks. It's hard to be bitter and resentful and angry sinfully when you're giving thanks all the time which means we have to be looking and seeing those things that are worthy of thanksgiving all the time that's a commitment but that's also the spirit's work or submitting to one another which means yielding our desires our preferences our opinions for the edification of our brothers and sisters in christ this is actually a mark of a community of people redeemed by the grace of God, given new hearts in Christ, walking in the spirit of God, is there's eagerness and a willingness and a gladness to yield our own desires, to yield our own preferences. So we're not talking about yielding the content of the gospel. We're not talking about yielding on sound doctrine. We're not talking about yielding in things that are like life and death salvation questions. But it is yielding to preferred temperature in the room, to room decor, to which room you're assigned for a Bible study at the church building. It is yielding to preferences, which is why if you leave a church or join another church, what you want is it to be for theological reasons, doctrinal reasons, preaching the gospel reasons. And there's bonus, maybe, of preferences. But we live in a day and age of consumerism where those preferences have become core and doctrinal questions become peripheral. And it will join if it feels right, sounds right, smells right. What, coffee, what kind of coffee do they serve? How much do they serve? Or any number of other, again, peripheral things that doesn't require you to submit so just be ready. God will make sure as part of the formation of your faith, part of conforming you to the image of Christ, will making sure you're put in situations where you have to yield your preferences to love others. I promise you, he will guarantee it. And so when those moments come, don't say, I guess I'm in the wrong church. Don't say, I, I guess I'm surrounded by the wrong people. No, those are the moments go, oh, this is one of those moments where the Lord's going to grow me by teaching me how to submit my personal desires and preferences and tastes and styles for the unification of the whole, for the edification of the church. And So this is why we pray to never fight over budgets, style of music, Christmas decorations, parking, or any other third, fourth tier issue. Again, it's fine to have opinions about it. It's fine to have requests. It's fine to put in your opinion. But that opinion has to be held with such a, a loose grip, such an open hand. It's okay to say, hey, I'd prefer this. But at the end of the day, those hands are open. Because we're willing to gladly submit. And that's one of the things that is going to distinguish the church from the rest of the world. Is our willingness as a group to do. Then, lastly, foundational spiritual fruit. These are some of the spiritual fruit that are more implied from other passages of Scripture rather than labeled fruit. This Philippians 2 1 to 11, I think, would clearly say humility is a fruit of being united to Christ. Humility is a foundational fruit to being united to Christ. Philippians 2.5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Which means if you're in Christ Jesus, you will have the mind of Christ, and that mind will express itself foundationally in humility. Being right-sized before God in our own minds. Pride is being wrong-sized before God thinking more highly of ourselves than we are. Humility is having the right assessment of our standing before God and others. Hope is a foundational, relational, or spiritual fruit. Romans 5, one, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We saw in Galatians 5 that we rejoice in hope of righteousness. That means that hope is just this foundational fruit of someone whose sins are forgiven and who are united to Jesus. Thirdly, perseverance. Jude, verses 20 and 21. Beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So if we're in that most holy faith, if we're in the Holy Spirit, he says that in evidence, a foundational fruit of that will be waiting for mercy. It'll be Perseverance. That long-suffering we talked about earlier. Humility, hope, perseverance. A couple quick implications before we break into groups for some discussion. Implications are really simple. Don't trust the world to produce what only the Holy Spirit can produce. That's the first implication. Don't look to the world to provide joy that only comes from the Spirit. Peace that only comes from the Spirit don't look to false religion don't look to law I've said before the law is good but it can't make you good it is good but it can't make me good it's really good because it really reveals how not good I am and how much I need a savior But it's actually the Spirit of God in your heart that is going to be producing the good fruits spirit so don't trust the world to do it whatever they're gonna offer it's a fabrication but rather trust God to produce that fruit in your life and in the life of others that maybe you're in a relationship with somebody where you're seeing all this anxiety all this discouragement all this frustration all this bitterness and all these ways in which they make your life uncomfortable are you praying for them Or are you giving them law? Are you just giving them things to do and change? Or are you realizing, you know what? The things that I think need to be produced in their heart and life are works of the spirit. And so I need to pray for them. When you see it in your own life, the need for it, are are you going to the Lord in prayer asking for his help? Are you going to his word to feed on it? And then are you resting and trusting, Lord, you will do this over time. I need to trust you. So that's what we're going to talk about in our discussion time. So as usual, we'll divide up into groups, five or six. There'll be three sort of points of discussion there. And so just work through one of them, two of them, three of them. Or maybe there's a whole other question that you think of as a group that would be great to talk about. And so we're going to take about 15 minutes or so and just have that group, that time of discussion. And then I'll come back up and pray for us to close here in a little bit. So let's break up into groups and talk.